Live from the center of the earth, girth. Uh, yo, welcome to my summer layer. I'm your host, Sam Yunan, and I'm at Hot Docs, and I have a director, Johnny Sweet, who did Quiet Storm, the runner test story. Welcome, Johnny. Sam, thanks for having me. Uh, yeah. Greatly appreciated. This office does not suck. So, yeah, yeah. Thank you. All right. There we go. So we're off to a good start. But before we talk about your movie, we also have to talk about another movie that just came out this weekend, Avengers Endgame. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> I thought I would get some of the... We'll get to your thing in a second. Yeah, yeah, no problem. Uh, but no, Avengers... I could talk about, about Endgame all day. So that's, that's what I figured. I so uh, were you happy with it? Were you... Uh, was there any characters? I don't know. We don't want you to have to get into spoilers. But overall, were you satisfied? I thought the Russo brothers wrapped up the wrapped up the whole... Was it 11, 12 years now of the films? I thought they wrapped it everything up perfectly with you know on a bow. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know... When you're seeing people around you crying at the end of the at the end of the film, I think you know that the dire- the uh, the directors hit the emotional chord, you know, pretty flawlessly. So, yeah, I I got I got no complaints on that film. It was different than Infinity War. Yeah, you know, it was very dialogue character uh, evolving, uh, whereas Infinity War was a little more action packed. I was uh, no, I was pleasantly surprised with the direction they took for the film. Uh, do you have a favorite Avengers, or like one of the Avenger characters? Uh, I don't have a favorite character. I do have a favorite MCU film. Yeah, what is it? Oh, Winter Soldier. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah tons of ruckus, tons of fun. Uh, well, I it was just it it was uh I just felt out of all the films it was uh it was it was very uh, it was a little more David Fincher like. It was a little darker. Mm-hmm. Uh, the action the action fighting scenes didn't look very CGI ish. They looked like you know real fighting scenes. Yeah, know, like old Bruce Lee kind of shit so oh man that's a great point like it would be interesting to see david fincher do a marvel movie it'd be super dark i don't know if that, <laughs> that would make a billion dollars like a, a well, but he has, he's got like a dark comedic side to hit to his films yeah. as well you know so uh fight club is very sarcastic and very witty yeah so is gone girl mm-hmm. <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> so, yeah uh i don't know we'll uh we'll see what we'll see where uh you know where they take the next phase i guess mm-hmm in terms of the next phase for you, though, you just put out Quiet Storm, the Ron Artest story. I want to start off with the obvious question, which is how come Ron Artest's name is in the title? Because I thought he changed his name to Meta World Peace. Well, his name's in the title because, uh, we didn't, you know, uh, if we just named it Quiet Storm, there would be a, an extra price tag. No, but I meant like Ron Artest itself, though. I thought he actually didn't he change his name to Meta World Peace. He did. The reason why, but in 95% of the film, he's Ron. Mm-hmm. And when he's going through all of, you know, all of his troubles, he's Ron. And I'm also, I'm from New York. Uh, I will, I, you know, I, I still have a problem calling him Meta. And Meta's rule of thumb is if you are 35 and older and from the East Coast, you can still call him Ron. He's totally fine by that. Okay. So I feel fine calling him Ron still. Mm-hmm. And people in New York will not call him Meta. They will still call him Ron. So, uh, yeah. And we don't really dive in that much into the Meta rule piece angle in the film. Mm-hmm. Um, just uh, just, be, uh, just because with the story arc, it doesn't really tie into... Uh, you know the his battle with uh, bipolar anxiety depression yeah so. i want to pick pick up on that because when you sit down to do a documentary and uh ron artest obviously is in the uh he's the subject matter you have to figure out a setting now where to talk to him and where to like do the interview with him 
you chose a, a boxing ring and you lit it really nice. It's all red and everything like that. Why did you choose a boxing ring for that kind of setting to, for him to, to share his story and his struggles? Ron loves boxing. His father was a Golden Gloves fighter. Uh, Ron is very invested in the sport, actually. He goes to not only the big fights that us casual fans will watch, he goes to the fights that might not even be on television. So he's very in tune into the sport, and we wanted to not only have a setting for him where you know he felt comfortable, but also one that was close by to where he lived for logistic reasons yeah. that that made uh, that just made life easier for for all parties. So mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, that's why that, and also the symbolic factor, the fact that a lot of people you know remember him for the fights that he got into. So mm -hmm. it all ties in together. We'll get into the malice at the palace in a little bit, but I, I want to touch on the fact that you're documenting Ron's struggles with depression as mental health. And that's kind of like the subplot or the main plot that kind of runs through the documentary. Why didn't you focus on like players like earlier players like Kendall Gill, for example? Mm -hmm. um, he played with the Sonics, uh, the Hornets. He actually was diagnosed uh, with clinical depression. Yeah. Why Ron Artest instead of like Kendall Gill or somebody else, for example? Uh, well, Ron's the bigger name, so you have that. Um, Ron, you know, I don't. Know, Kendall Gill was. Uh, you, you got you got a couple things they're gonna run into there. Uh, one Kendall Gill was a Sonic. Mm -hmm. Sonic's footage is very tough to license and clear from the NBA because of the Thunder now. Mm -hmm. So you have that as an obstacle. Uh, the other thing is, uh, if you're looking at interview subjects, Ron is the most, uh, you know, he's a very uh, gregarious, guileless, open, you know, open mic kind of, you know, interview. Mm -hmm. Kendall Gill uh, is not, isn't on that level that Ron is in terms of that. So we knew when Ron, when we, when Ron was, when we had him and he was going to talk for four and a half hours, we knew we were going to get the real, like the real, real. He wasn't going to hold anything back. Uh, you can challenge him with tough questions and he was going to answer. Yeah. Ron Artest seems to come across like he doesn't have a filter. No, he doesn't. And another thing is also Kendall Gill was also uh, late eighties, early nineties. Ron's a little more recent. He's a little more uh, modern. Mm -hmm. And we wanted to, I mean, we're picking a, and also Kendall Gill is not a polarizing figure. Ron's been a polarizing figure. And Ron is also very well known to not only the, uh, you know, your millennial and some of the Gen Z generation, but he's very well known in the Gen X generation. Mm -hmm. So you're hitting a bunch of different age gaps that will connect, you know, connect with this film. And also, uh, Ron, Ron grew up in a very creative environment, even though it was violent and even though it was, uh, you know, a situation that would, ha you know, almost any person would probably be diagnosed with PTSD after coming out of Queensbridge in the 80s or Queens in general in the 80s, for that matter. Which is basically a project housing in uh, New York City. Yeah, yeah. But at the same time, that th these, you know, these terrible environments uh, also bred some of the best lyricists in, in the history of, of the hip hop genre. And Ron grew up with these guys before they were famous. He grew up with them watching them working on their craft. You know, you have Havoc from Mob Deep. Uh, you know, you have Capone and Noriega, although Noriega's from Left Rat Queens, but he came down to Queensbridge a lot because he was with Capone when they were working again. Capone is actually Ron's cousin. So you have that. Now, obviously you have Nas, and, yeah. you know, and you have Roxanne Chante before that. And you got all these guys. You, you basically have like the Nashville to country music of, of hip-hop right in this you know in the biggest housing projects in the united states and ron grew up in the middle of 
you know, this hyper creative lyrical era. So, uh, yeah, Kendall Gill doesn't have that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, yeah, yeah. No, that's fair. And yeah. that's, Kendall Gill obviously was one of the, I might've been actually the first as far as I know. To but my recollection, he's the first that actually came out and he was vilified. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like, and he didn't, and I know like he doesn't have the same arc, but it's just interesting. Um, oh, with that and also Ram was a better player. Yeah. You know, so mm-hmm. that, that also jumps up. Ram was, I mean, Ron was an MVP candidate one year. Mm-hmm. Uh, Kendall Gill, not so much. Yeah. But look, he was a good player, mm-hmm. but he wasn't the two-way player that Ron was. Yeah. Guys didn't model their game after Kendall Gill. They, there's guys in the league now who model their style after Ron. So That's nice. That's a cool legacy. So you mentioned a couple of things, and I want to address them. Uh, you mentioned that uh, Ron is polarizing, but this is the second uh, polarizing athlete you've covered. You, you did a documentary on Michael Vick. The, uh, I think he's the Atlanta Falcons uh, quarterback. Yeah. So are you drawn to these uh, polarizing athletes because of the narratives, or do you feel that the narratives that they have that are associated with them are just kind of incomplete or they should be re-looked at? I don't think it needs to be. I don't think they're incomplete. Uh, my, uh, Mike's story was different from Ron's. Mike's story was the sense I made the film because I wanted to ask the question, is it time to forgive? And guess what? You know what the answer to that question is? Yes. No, both answers are right. Yes or you can answer yes or no, and you're both you're, you're right on both mm-hmm. on both accounts. Um, I, I think what wasn't with Vic's story, what wasn't analyzed with his story was um, the cultural environment that he grew up with. You know, down in the Virginia Beach area, Newport News. That you know, uh, you know, dog fighting was very commonplace. Just like you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, rooster fighting in the Dominican Republic, it's commonplace. It's it's considered, you know, just their their natural culture. And there's certain parts of the South, like Mississippi and stuff, where people just kind of have generations going Ku Klux Klan, right? Uh, yeah. Uh, although dog dog fighting crosses, but here's the thing about with, with dog fighting that I learned was mm-hmm. that it crossed it crossed all it crossed all uh, poor demographics in the South. It didn't matter, you know, what your background was, white, black, mm-hmm. whatever. And, you know, Mike grew up in that. Um, does that excuse what he did? Uh, no. Uh, but he also has spent the last, you know, what now, 13, 14 years, every every single time, basically not only saying that, you know, admitting what he did was wrong, but also he's invested his time in the, uh, in the you know, in the judicial system, both federal and local, trying to get laws. And he doesn't publicize it. He spends his own money. He's not paid to do this. So when is when is there a time to say, all right, you know, someone has served their debt to society and not only that, they are going above and beyond what is being asked of them to serve this debt. Should that person be forgiven for, you know, what what they were involved with? So uh, and again, however you feel that answer is correct, but it should still be asked and debated, Mm -hmm. you know, just for uh, for educational purposes, I felt. And you touched upon uh, Ron Artest's upbringing, which is uh, there's a lot of hip hop, a lot of hip hop connected in that uh, neighborhood. And the Michael Vick story as well, the documentary also had a lot of hip hop connected to it. Yeah. Because hip hop is the opposite almost of sports, where it's like if you can't ball, then you can rap, but it's still got the alpha male kind of mentality where like I'll murder MCs and things like that. Is that also kind of like part of the connection there between um, like Ron Artest trying to ball his way out of Queensbridge? But at the same time, is like hip hop is like very like alpha male and very strong. I think their two stories are, are totally isolated when it comes to. I don't have to have this kind of you know music and background mm-hmm. for for stories. Um, 
with with uh, Ron's case is obvious. It's you know it's Queensbridge. It's a it's 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 you know you can call it the Mecca or the Medina in in certain cases for for rap music. But Vic, Mike grew up in the Virginia Beach area, which if you really break down the math, the Virginia Beach area is the cause of pop music changing over the last you know 20 years because of Pharrell and Timbaland Mm -hmm. not you know like New York rappers were going down to Virginia Beach to record with Pharrell they were going down there to record with Timbaland and you know like like Noriega who's in both films actually he's the one who puts Pharrell on the map with Super Thug and in 19 I think it was 1998 yeah Nori's solo album came out if Super Thug doesn't come out and that's not the the hit of the summer I I, you know we we don't know who Pharrell is after that Mm -hmm. you know so um and the Virginia Beach area had its own culture in terms of music and competitive nature that, you know, that Mike and the music scene at that point identified with and also Alan Iverson, of course. So I think they're just both, I think both guys just naturally come from these kind of, you know, they just come from these environments. Uh, I don't think that has to be explored on, and that's not going to happen with every single subject or athlete that we focus on (laughs) i think these are just rare isolated uh cases when you know when 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 this happens Mm -hmm. but it reinforces too what you were saying before which is like this is also kind of a new york city story as well yeah i know ron artest played for other teams but um especially notably like the lakers for example but like this again just kind of connects to you as well as a new yorker these elements when they come together this is very classic new york yeah, uh, I tried. I, I tried my best to stay as objective as possible in terms of that the lens. But I, I think when you're talking about Queens and that era, the lens has to be that has to be part of the lens of telling his story. Mm-hmm. Um, that's where he was first diagnosed. That's where he learned to play ball. That's where he initially learned how to solve problems. So, and Queens during that time from south from the South Jamaica area all the way down to Queensbridge was really under the threat of violence from some of the most notorious crack kingpins that have ever, you know, walked the, the soil of the United States. You have Kenneth Suprema Griff, you know, you have uh, Fat Cat, you have, I mean, these guys ran the drug trade, not only and their, you know, their connections expanded past Queens, you, you know, even, and these kids were growing up under that, that cloud. So yeah, that the the dark tone of Queens, uh, you know, that we feel, hopefully, I, I think we feel throughout the film, uh, you know, it's it stems from that, and um, yeah, I mean, I felt felt we had to stay in that kind of dark New York '80s, early '90s mm-hmm. uh, kind of style in order to tell this as effectively and authentically as possible. Yeah, I mean, it feeds into that what you were just saying before. It's like it's not surprising almost in a way that he that Ron or people coming out of that neighborhood don't have PTSD because you see so much. And sometimes like when you see a little like bio or something for a celebrity, he grew up in a rough neighborhood and it's just like one line and then everything kind of like the rest of the bio goes on. But yeah. it's like that he grew up in a rough neighborhood. That's a lot of emotional experiences. That well, he, not only that, but what also is not... I don't I don't think a lot of people understand. It's also the socioeconomic factors that, that pop into place. Your options are limited, mm-hmm. and Ron is a natural. As actually, Ron's a naturally very, very intelligent person. His his major at St. John's was architecture. Architecture. Yeah. He lo- and he also he loved math. 
these are things that you know he naturally his brain could you know compute and and use so but you know the new york city public education system is based on property taxes and probably most of america's education systems are based on property taxes so the poor environment that you're in the worst education you're going to get most likely mm-hmm. whereas if you live in you know area where the property taxes are higher because you can afford it your public school is going to provide you with the resources the more you know more of the more of the deck of cards that can help you succeed later in life so um i think what helps with this was from the psych- psychological standpoint of if you grow up in socioeconomic environments that are detrimental to your well-being and that leads you open to the genetic disorders that you have in order in order when when you have mental triggers that are pressed mm-hmm. so. which makes sense because society's already kind of said like you're not valuable and so already kind of abandoned you in a way like you said once the taxes and everything kind of go like yeah. this neighborhood over here we'll put money into it but we gave up on this neighborhood over here i know you're part of new york <laughs> but we're like we're not going to deal with you guys. Like, we'll just write you off and we'll just focus on, like, Manhattan and other, like, sexier areas. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I'm, as someone who grew up in the New York public education system in the 80s and early 90s, uh, yeah, I think that, I mean, that, that, makes, that makes sense. We had, you know, we have, you know, my, my, my schools were, were fine, but they were still, you know, crowded. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't have the one-on-one attention. You know that I had when I when I moved out to the suburbs when I was 15. You know, when I moved out to the suburbs when I was 15. All of a sudden, teachers are like, they're like on my ass, like they're pushing me. You know, and I'm, I was just like, you know, I never had this before. This is, but I needed it. And it, you know, it, it furthered you know my education at a much faster rate. Before I'm in a classroom with four, you know, there's 40 kids in a classroom. You know, and not you know not everyone has has books. Uh, not everyone you know. Uh, is getting the attention you know that they need in order to further their education so i mean yeah i mean there's some of the shit that we had to deal with when we were growing up in new york yeah so ron gets out goes to st john's he gets into the nba and unfortunately everything kind of comes to a head with the, the malice at the palace yeah which was crazy like i remember that like because i didn't watch that game at the time i know it was on tv or whatever but when when you start to see the highlights of it you're like, what? Like, as an NBA fan, there's no way to wrap your head around it. We had never seen anything like that before. Well, you've seen it in hockey, though. Hockey, yeah. But I don't follow hockey, though. I don't follow hockey either. So, you know, I just find it I find it interesting that when a hockey, when it happened in hockey, I forget what the... I forget what the what the game what the NHL game was when the fan when the was it the Bruins where they went into the stands and some guy was beating some guy with his skate. Um, and soccer's had its hooligans and its rough people too. There's been some fights and things like that. Yeah. Uh, well, I, my my knowledge of soccer sucks, and my fiance, that's why I just did a, a generalization. Uh, yeah, my my fiance just kills me on my soccer knowledge at times, and I, I'm trying to get better. I think Mbappe is the greatest player i've ever seen live so i guess i'm doing i'm improving there i hope there you go yeah um i don't you know with the nba it was it was different because it crossed uh across demographic barriers mm-hmm. you know and it happened in middle america and, you know detroit's technically still middle america well especially the suburbs of detroit uh where especially i've been to the palace at auburn hills like 
it's not like I know sometimes people when they think of like Detroit, they think of like Eight Mile or Eminem or Jack White or some of the more shadier yeah. areas. But this was actually a little bit more of a like you got to go deeper into Detroit to get to the palace at Auburn Hills. No, Auburn Hills is <laughs> the nice houses are out there. Yeah. You know, uh, yeah, it wasn't not it wasn't in the uh, it wasn't in the uh, it wasn't in the inner city. Yeah. No, you weren't you weren't you weren't hearing lose yourself in the background. this <laughs> no. time. So. The malice at the palace. Did you find that your as you got to that part in the documentary, do you find that your narrative changed for it and how you viewed that incident, especially as you kind of talked to Ron and you saw some of the remorse that he had, because uh, he couldn't express that as well in the documentary. I don't, I don't think he showed that much remorse for the. Well, ball. he kind of reached out to uh, um, the fan. He doesn't have any remorse for the incident itself. All right, that's a better way to put yeah. it. Yeah. 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 He's he doesn't. Uh, um. Uh, my, I mean, I had my views on the brawl beforehand, but I'm not. I'm, I'm trying to be. I have to be an objective journalist mm-hmm. as I'm doing this. I'm not trying to, yeah, sway one thing or another. That's why there's opinions on both sides there. You know, Jermaine O'Neal saying that he would do it again, and there's the reasons why he would go through that. You know, he would make the same decisions again. And then you also have Bill Walton, who was a broadcaster that night, you know, basically giving the other perspective of why you know these players needed to be vilified. You know, and and heavily criticized for, for what happened. So I, and he's in the dock as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, we wanted to show, we wanted to show both sides uh, of, of, or we, or we tried our best to show both sides of how that incident was viewed in real time when it was happening with mm-hmm. people who were there. So. Do you think uh, Ron's participation in your documentary and kind of talking about it will ever open up a 30 for 30 for that? Like just on that incident itself, I wouldn't know. I don't work for. I, yeah, I know, know it's a different company. I I don't. Uh, I I have no idea. Uh, I can definitely tell you there are countless directors and other places that would love a film only on the brawl. Mm-hmm. Um, I but yeah, I have no idea in terms of where that's at or you know what the stages are with that. I'm sure there's been. I mean, come on. I'm sure there's discussions out there somewhere, somehow, yeah. with these guys on how to on how to make all that. Uh, I think it should be made. I hope someone does make it, and I hope it's done well, and I hope it's analyzed from every angle as possible because I think it's I think it's an important part of uh, you know not just uh, you know not just what happened you know in NBA history, but in terms of American sports cultural history. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I mean, I hope it gets made. Uh, I don't want to make it. <laughs> I'm good. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm, I, I won't, I, I had to go into it because it's Ron's story, uh, part of Ron's story, but, um, I don't think, you know, mm-hmm. if it gets made cool, great. Uh, yeah. you know, no, that's fair. And do you think, um, had that brawl not happened and the suspension not happened, do you think then the Pacers would have won or would have come close to winning that year? Yeah. Their team was deep. They just acquired Steven Jackson when he was in his prime. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was coming off winning a title with the Spurs. Uh, he fit very well with, because uh, he was uh, uh, Al Harrington. I'm sorry if you listen to this at all. Steven Jackson was, you know, an upgrade over Al Harrington. <laughs> uh, and they almost won the title the year before with Al Harrington in that, in that position. So you upgraded Steven Jackson. Uh, they had a very deep bench. Rick, mm-hmm. Carl, Rick Carlisle is one of the best coaches in, you know, the last 20 years of the league. Detroit won the year before, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. They, uh, you know, Ron was at the height of his, you know, Ron was, I think Ron was top five in scoring when he was suspended. And, he, you know, he, 
he was at he was at the height of his basketball progression at that point, and they're all healthy. Reggie Miller, of course. Uh, yeah. Although Reggie Miller had his, his thumb was broken during yeah. the, night of the brawl, but he was still there. But Reggie was Reggie was sacrificing his game to be the perfect role player for that team. That was his last year, I think. Right? Uh, Did he retire? I don't know if that was his last year or was the year after. I I don't know. Okay, let's go with one of those two. Yeah, I'm sure. Internet. I'm sure we can Google it on yeah. Basketball Reference and. So yeah, but was Ron open to talking about that as well? Because Ron was open to talking about anything. Yeah, because <laughs> we talked we touched upon the fact that he has no filter. So you were okay. He was okay in terms of like bringing that up and then like talking about it and putting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, you know, yeah. I mean, I don't want to give it too much away uh, mm-hmm. for people who haven't seen it yet. Yeah, he doesn't pull it. He's not holding anything back in this. You know. Because we touched upon a couple of the things, the the hip hop in New York City. We talked about uh, talked about the Detroit brawl. Is this limited to NBA fans, or do you feel that other people would like? If people are interested in mental health, for example, or if people are interested in any of these kind of like stories, no. The most uh, throughout the the festival run that we've had, the best responses we have gotten are from people who don't who honestly don't give a shit about sports, mm-hmm. um, and it's the 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 mental the the analyzation of the men, of Ron's mental illness that has um i feel has uh opened some eyes but also has made others who are living a little more in the dark with uh not not only if they have issues themselves but if they have friends or family members that are dealing with uh, you know similar types of you know diagnoses those are the people who have either have come up to me after you know the q a's and have spoken to me in private or there's been there have been plenty of people who have stood up and have given they didn't ask us questions during the q a they gave like confessional testimonies because they watch ron you know ron's story and you know the, the focus of it being down that lane and they felt comfortable in a theater among strangers to to open up about their own issues you know uh with with mental illness Mm -hmm. and mental struggles so no you don't you can watch this and not yeah i mean this is not made for the sports fan yeah does ron's story change at all if he doesn't win that ring with the lakers and he just like he had a great career but like there's a lot of great players that had a great career but obviously didn't win a ring does it does his story change at all if he's not quote-unquote a winner it definitely adds it, it gives you the cliche you know redemption at the end of a you know near, at the climax of a story uh it, it does change in the sense that if he doesn't win that he doesn't go on national television and thank his uh well here's the funny here's the funny thing he thanks his psychiatrist but really she's his psychologist so he actually misspoke on national television <laughs> this is when he won the uh when the the night the lakers won yeah and so then the the TV reporter is basically yeah. like when he's th- when he's thanking Dr. Santa Parasami, he calls her uh, his uh, psychiatrist. It's actually she was actually his psychologist. But you know, look, you just win the national championship, and you are so elated, and you know, you know, everything's going on around you. It's me- you know, it's 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 positive chaos. So mm-hmm. he misspoke when he called her his psychiatrist, when really psychologist. Um, yeah, his story does change because if he doesn't hit that shot and win that title, he doesn't create the freestyle platform right after the game with Doris Burke where he thanks her. And, you know, if he doesn't thank her on national television, I think we are still 
it, it, it sped up the educational process and especially, well, I can't speak for the rest of the world, but especially in the United States in terms of players who were dealing with these kinds of issues. And he, instead of it, instead of this being gradually, the door is opening with guys like Brandon Marshall in the NFL and et cetera, Ron kicked the door down mm-hmm. and that wasn't even his intent. He was cause he was being open and honest and authentic in that moment. It wasn't pre-planned. It wasn't a PSA. It wasn't a, a scripted Ted talk. Yeah. <laughs> you know, this was just how he was feeling at the time. And he was giving, and he was also giving you like concrete examples of like the breathing exercises and she <laughs> helped him relax. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it was very, enli- you know, it was, it was, it was the, an enlightened moment of an evolved man. And no, if he doesn't win that, no, if he doesn't make that show, we, we, we don't have a film. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it's also, like you said, it, there's an American thing, too, where, like, once you win a championship or a Super Bowl or something like that, people kind of shift how they view you. Absolutely. There's no, there's no better sports PR for a, uh, for a controversial athlete than winning the title. Yeah, because it's like... Uh, I gave you Ray Lewis. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, like, if, if a regular athlete just says, all right, do 10 push-ups a day and you'll be successful, but they don't have anything to back it up, then people are like, oh, whatever. Yeah. But then if they win a Super Bowl or win a ch- NBA Finals... Then they're like, do 10 push-ups a day. Everyone's like, yo, I'm doing 10 push-ups a day. Like, it galvanizes and changes. There's no, you you could hire the greatest publicist in the world. It doesn't matter. If you win a title, that publicist fee, you don't even need to pay them. Mm-hmm. There's no better way to change. In American sports culture, there's no better way to turn your image around than winning a, than winning a championship. So I think it's a combination of, it's a, it's it distracts from, what you did in the past, but also it's, you know, there is an aspect, a certain aspect of American sports culture where second, you know, you're given second chances. So, yeah. And I think that's also the inspiring thing to Ron Artest story is that he got number of chances. Like there was like, even after the, the Pistons brawl, they were in the locker room with him and Steven Jackson. And he says to him, do you think we're going to get in trouble? <laughs> right. And it's just like, how do you not realize the enormity? Like, you're, this isn't just like you pushed a ref or something like that. Like, you were in the in the stands punching people. Well, you could, well, I mean, I don't know how many more examples we can show, uh, you know, that there are, there's moments where Ron is not in his right mind because his mind is going in nine different, different, different directions at once, you know. So, you know, what's interesting about that night is, the incident began because Ron actually did what his team, uh, his team psychologist slash psychiatrist on the Pacers told him to do. If you feel extra agitation, which is what happened when Ben Wallace shoved him in the face after he after Ben Wallace overreacted to a foul. I'm sorry, that's just my personal opinion. I don't know if that really matters, but you know he went over and laid down on the bench, uh, you know on the scores table, I should say. Be, instead of fighting Wallace because he was tr- he was doing what he was what he was practicing mm-hmm. now it looked comedic but I th- he's doing he's he's doing what he's doing what he was told to do mm-hmm. and because of what he did what he was told to do it led to a cup landing in his chest and face area which you know and then that was off we go yeah, that's all she wrote yeah I want to segue slightly out of that, but I want to stick with second chances or third chances. Hey, Sam, it's your show. You oh. tell us where to go. Okay. Well, because I do want to touch upon the fact that you are from New York, and so the Knicks have been long-suffering. 
Oh man. Um, maybe to I put should, it mildly, I, I should take that back. Hey, yeah, I, I know go you don't want to go down this road. But oh, I, hey, you, hey, I can go down this road all day. All it's, right. It's, it's obvious what's wrong. So. But are you hoping then they get the number one pick and get Zion? Are you on that camp or are you just what are you hoping for? for the yeah, next? I want the number one pick and I want us to spend our money wisely on talent. Yeah, I would. Yeah. In a perfect world, uh, I would want Zion, KD and Kemba Walker. So oh, that's a good team. Uh, yeah, I'm not on the Kyrie train. Uh, mm-hmm. I'd rather have Kemba Walker. Uh, I know that sounds crazy, but. I, after living through Amari, where Amari was great for five months and he was injury riddled for the, the rest of his contract, I, I don't want to get a, I don't want to get five great months of Kyrie and then all of a sudden he's getting arthroscopic knee surgery every six months. Mm-hmm. I'd rather get Kemba Walker, who you know is going to play every game, and Kemba also views the Garden as like, you know, a holy ground of basketball for himself since he played at Rice. Also, his UConn accomplishments there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that would be my. That'd be my choice, but you know I'm not a GM and I'm not an uh, evil owner like James Dolan. <laughs> you ever take a break from the Knicks and then head next door to Brooklyn to see the Nets, or is it? You want to know what's really what's funny? Yeah, the Knicks on MSG their ratings dropped 38 percent this year, and that was still twice as many viewers as what the Nets drew in a season where they were. They had like, their best season. They in were like the darlings of the Eastern Conference. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, if you needed any more proof that that the Knicks are still the only team in New York that you know unifies that you know unites the city, uh, you know, I can give you countless examples. The, the city is split in all other sports almost, except basketball. Mm-hmm. You know, the city is split in terms of Giants, Jets, Yankees, Mets. The Knicks are the only team that everyone. Kind of get, yeah, That's why rally. the '90s were so crazy. Like the Garden was like the loudest building in the league. Mm-hmm. So and the team was so good. Oh man, I miss that. Well, I mean, Latrell Sprewell is my favorite player ever. So mm-hmm. uh, yeah, yeah, we yeah we miss those teams. We just needed one title. Thanks, Jordan. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, and Kareem too. Kareem. Uh, Kareem oh, sorry, not Kareem. Oh, um, Hakeem. You're th- Hakeem. A, a lo- yeah, Hakeem. Sorry. Yeah. Oh, God. Don't, yeah, John Starks, yeah. Game 7. Oh, yeah. oh, man. Jesus. Yeah, 2 for 18. Thanks, buddy. Mm-hmm. So close, though. Like, right up to the end there. Uh, well, it's tough because, like, Starks played so hard all the time, and he's so identified with the, you know, with, with, with the grittiness of the city. Wasn't drafted. You know, defensive-minded guard. Played hard every single second. Uh, and then for his habit, because he, he was the most beloved Nick on that roster. Uh, and well, him and Oakley. Yeah, that was rough. Yeah. I don't think, I, I think that and the Charles Smith blown layups are the two things that have really, oh, yeah. I don't think Nick, Nick fans from my generation have not, have not recovered. I don't think we still haven't recovered from, from those. Uh, Starks, because we were clearly better than the Rockets. Charles Smith, because that was our best shot at taking down Michael Jordan. Yeah, and the thing too, the the Jordan thing too, is because he, he was off playing baseball, he never really got to deal with the Rockets. Uh, he would have been the Rockets. You think so? Yeah, yeah. He, I, I'm not. I, I I don't think. Only the Houston Rockets would have would have touched uh, Jordan in his in his <laughs> prime. I, no, it's I I don't. No, because there were teams that Jordan beat that were better than the Rockets. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I I mean I would I would make the argument the Sonics team that he beat were better than the Rockets. The Sonics team won sixty four games. 
they uh, were another team too. They they had a couple of good years there with some really solid players. Yeah, but they also had to go through a gauntlet every. I mean, you have to go through Akeem. You got to go through Barkley. Mm-hmm. You know. Well, uh, they couldn't even get out of the first round sometimes too. Oh yeah, I remember. Yeah, they <laughs> lost to Van Exel and Ellen Campbell that year. Yeah, with the, with the Lake Show. Yeah, mm-hmm. I remember that. Yeah, uh, you know, uh, Jordan also beat the Trailblazers when Clyde and all of them are at their the peak of their. Uh, you know, Cliff Robinson and uh, and Terry Porter. Mm-hmm. So no, I, I don't. I mean, I'm not like a look. I didn't play in the league. I didn't play college <laughs> ball even. So you can take it for what it's worth. But as a semi, as a, as an obsessive NBA fan, no, no one was stopping Michael. But How did the NBA come into your life? Was it just something you started watching in New York City, or your dad, or something, or how did it come? No, I I grew up in New York. Uh, it's a playground game. You know, you're you know you're six seven years old and you're playing you know it's it's recess time there's only one thing you want to do you want to play ball you want to mm-hmm. play you know you play against your friends and uh you know when it's warm out in the summertime you know you're playing on you know courts that are within your neighborhood you know the city game um so uh the knicks in the 90s were very identifiable they were relatable we there weren't Ewing was an amazing player and probably, you know, an amazing athlete for his position. Outside of that, the team didn't have amazing athletes. They had, uh, you know, it was a very uh, blue collar kind of way of winning. Mason, Xavier McDaniel. Yeah, although Mason's handles were disgusting. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know <laughs> that guy had the most New York game of any Nick I've yeah. ever seen. And the new, most New York hair, too. Oh, Remember yeah. Remember, he had yeah, all the yeah. little oh, stuff oh, shaved. that, into- yeah. And he's wearing Carl Kanai, like, yeah. you know, with the Tims and all that. Yeah, he was, they were very identifiable uh, with, with the city. Uh, yeah, so that's how, I mean, that's why the Knicks became my first love. Because before the Knicks, my, my first love was actually the Mets. But, you know, because uh, Dykstra was my favorite player. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah. So... Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's my connection with the Knicks. So how did then you end up at Bleacher Report then? It was just that, like, as you got older, then you wanted to stick with sports and kind of get into sports journalism? Or what was the kind yeah, of Yeah, uh, well, I knew I was uh, not going to be playing college ball, uh, let alone professional ball. Um, you have so, to believe before you can achieve. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> um, but, you know, you watch a ton of games. You watch a ton of pregame, postgame halftime shows you watch a ton of sports programming growing up i you know i knew i, I wanted to you know, you're reading magazines and all that and, and all that so you're inundating yourself with so much sport with the sports media at the time i wanted to be paid to watch and, and cover sports i wanted a hobby so uh, I wanted to be paid for my hobby, I should say. Uh, I knew I had to get into a s- solid journalism program in order to get my b- get myself a shot. So I wanted to, you know, uh, I want to thank my mom for staying on my ass, and I was able to get into uh, the Newhouse Journalism School at Syracuse, which is you know one of the most prestigious journalism programs in the country, mm-hmm. and they're you know. 25% of their alumni went on to go work at ESPN. Uh, that's what happened to me. I went on to go and work at ESPN for uh, nearly 10 years. And, uh, you know, then I went out I went out west uh, to freelance after that. And then, um, you know, the call came from Turner and Bleacher Report. I, you know, I missed covering the league. So, you know, I came back uh, to New York, which made my mom happy. And, yeah, that's how I wound up there. 
So I want to tie this back into uh, your documentary about Ron Artest. And like when you're at ESPN, for example, how much of the the narrative is being driven by the, the player's behavior on the court, by their comments, those kind of things? How much of it is being like like media people or just journalists kind of just coming up with things or just kind of framing the incidents or whatever it is like that? How much of the narrative is being driven by the player? How much of it is driven by the media? Um, I, I mean, I'm, I, rev- I would rather the voices that of the people who were involved in all these anecdotes tell it. Mm-hmm. I think that's the most authentic way to go about it. That's why there's no narrative tracks in, in my films. So, uh, I think that's how you drive. That's how, that's the most authentic form of trying to tell a truthful storyline. Sports is hard, too, because it just happens in the moment. Like, Jordan will do something or the Knicks will, like, lose against the Rockets in that moment. And then it's like there's always that question, too. Like, what are the who are the free agents, like, at the end of this year? And those kind of like, what are the next steps that you know what I mean? So Uh, it's sometimes hard to classify exactly what is happening in that exact moment, too. But in terms of uh, of how I of the storytelling, uh like the storytelling vehicle that was created for the yes and about how that was kind of done or well no i'm saying for like in terms of regular sports journalism what day by day it's happening in the moment I gotcha. but you're in the, you're doing a documentary so you're doing it several years like the the palace uh brawl for example was like 2004 yeah so you're talking to like ron artest and like what is it 2016 2017 well I, well I, but i when i was espn i primarily covered the league mm-hmm. the nba that was my you know i was a feature producer and the two sports that i you know did my features on were the nba and the nfl and the nba is a long season you know the nba is like a pregnancy it's nine months long mm-hmm. uh if you t- if you count training camp all the way to you know the nba finals so, um, you know, I, you, you cover the league that long and you, uh, you know, my, I, I had Ron's career. Well, I had Ron's career memorized from the, when I was 16 years old. I remember watching him play at LaSalle. I, you know, I watched him play at St. John's. I was a St. John's fan before I went off to Syracuse. So I had his career from both an audio and a visual standpoint totally memorized in my brain. And then you combine the fact that the ESPN features production department is like the best training in the world for documentary style sports storytelling. I had amazing teachers and mentors there like, you know, like Martin Kopistashi and Tom McCollum. So, and Chris Bloxham who also works at TNT now. Um, I was able to, you know, they kicked my ass. They, in a good way, it was very, you know, the constructive criticism that's there is uh, honest, uh, times aggressive, but, you know, hey, you found out what's what works, what doesn't work and how to improve. And, you know, if I don't go through that, if I don't get the, the dogmatic principles there, mm-hmm. I can't make this film. No, it, not at all. So, yeah. And so what are you hoping to do after this? Now you've done Michael Vick, you've done Run Our Test. What are, is there anybody or any subject that you're looking to tackle next? Or uh, We don't know yet. Uh, we're, we're still filtering through who the next uh, possible subjects might be. I have There's choices that I have mm-hmm. uh, that I would like to do. Um, but uh, I don't. Uh, we'll we'll see what the uh, you know we'll see what the collective 
uh, thinks of you know some of these uh, the choices that we want to go down. Can but, we expect more documentaries in general too from the Bleacher Report and kind of Turner family? Uh, I don't know. I have I have no idea. I mean, look, two year there were two years that separated you know Vic's story from Ron's. Mm-hmm. So I, I think we we choose on a per case basis. Uh, you know, it's not like 30 for 30 where it's like you want to get, you know, they have like what they put out like six to 10 a year. Mm-hmm. We're not, you know, we're not, yeah, they're we, the don't volume. Have that kind of, we don't have that kind of, uh, uh, media strategic thought process. It's a case by case basis. And, uh, you know, Mike's story we felt was important to tell. So, you know, we told it and then Ron's obviously we felt was very important to tell. We were lucky to get a fantastic partner in that where, you know, with Showtime. Mm-hmm. So. Oh, I, I hope, you know, uh, hopefully this, uh, you know, that bridge keeps being built. Uh, no, it'd be, uh, that'd be great. All right, cool. Uh, thank you so much for taking that. We covered a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Jeez. How long was I here? I talked too much. My apologies. 35 minutes. It's yeah. Not... Yeah. It's, yeah. I talked too much. But we covered the nineties Knicks. We covered the, the malice at the palace. We covered, uh, Ron's mental health struggles growing up in, uh, Queensbridge, New York city, yeah. uh, your journey as well. A little bit of it. Uh, yeah, my journey's whatever. I know, but people need a little bit of background or whatever. Like, yeah. who was that mask man? He just came in and dropped the documentary and then left town. Mask man. I, I had no mask <laughs> and I had the same hoodie on that I had when I did the Q and A. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll probably have the same hoodie on tomorrow. So. All right. Well, that, that was my last question then. So now yeah. Oh, no, good. Yeah, I got the, the hoodie question. We got the hoodie question out of the way. Oh, you know. So it's a New York thing. Yeah. So thank you, Johnny. Thanks for the documentary. It's really solid. Like, um, cause it's one of, like you said, like Ron Artest, like is one of those polarizing figures, but it's like, everybody has an opinion on him. He's like Kanye West or something like that. Like you can't just casually drop his name into a conversation. Hey, if you got an opinion on him, uh, you know, May 31st showtime. Okay. You can watch it then. You watch, you know, it'll, it'll come out, it'll come out then. So, uh, you, everyone can enjoy it during the Memorial day weekend. Perfect. Thank you, Johnny. Thank you. Yo, that was fresh. My name is Sam Unin. This has been my summer layer. You can follow me on all the social medias. I am on Facebook and I am on Twitter and I am on Instagram. They're all at my pal Sammy. I've made your life simple. You don't need to wear pants for any of them. Just come on, hang out, um, make some jokes. It's sarcasm. It's fun. Thank you. <laughs>